would, through your word and spirit, help us to see that being your people, being your child, is a great delight. And Father, would you help your gathered children grow up and mature in the faith today as we come to your word. Oh, Father, so speak to us that we would grow more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever put a shirt on backwards or inside out? Uh, It happened to me this morning. I was putting on an undershirt in the dark And it just didn't feel right. When I turned on some light, I saw the tag in the front. And I realized that's not the way it should be. I mean, how many times have you opened up a box not paying attention to these words on the side? This side up. Now those are mostly trivial, right? Because there are not too many damaging or dangerous consequences It come out of wearing something inside out or backwards. Uh, Embarrassing? Yes, of course. But not dangerous. Not not damaging to you or anyone else. How about the times, though, when when you've lost situational awareness? You've lost the proper perspective. You can't see the horizon In the Navy, we had an expression when we figured out we didn't know what we're doing, we've lost the bubble. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You're so confused, you don't know which way is up and which way is down. You don't know which side of the box is supposed to be up. You you don't know how to figure out how to wear the shirt. Well, I've got... I've got some great news for all of us today, as God's word will help orient us so that we'll be able to distinguish between what is upside down and what is right side up. Here we are in Acts, volume two of Luke. Acts is that transition between the four gospels and the letters to the churches and individuals. Acts is here, just like all the scripture, to strengthen our faith by showing that that Christianity is grounded in the acts of God in history. It's a selective record of all that Jesus Christ continues to do and teach now by His Spirit in His church. Chapter 15, we saw the Jerusalem Council. We saw Paul and Barnabas after that separate, and and Paul and Silas come together and head out on a, a second missionary journey. In chapter 16, we've seen Paul gain a new worker, Timothy. He's been given a new vision to go over to Macedonia to to bring the gospel into Europe, that major turning point in Acts, that epic-making development. We've seen him minister in the city of Philippi where there have been three surprising conversions of a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a civil servant. Last week, we looked at the first three verses of Chapter 17, and we looked at a different place, but the same message. Uh, Let's just read uh, verses 1 through 3 again. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Thessalonica, a major city, the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia, a commercial center, an administrative center. It's a strategic uh, location. Paul was, was smart. He uses the Roman highways to get the gospel to places from which the gospel could expand, indeed, to the whole world. And in that city, there are enough Jews to have a synagogue. And so that's where Paul started. You know, Paul, of course, is commissioned to be that, that apostle to the Gentiles, but he writes to the Romans about the, the gospel being the power of God for the Jew first, for the power of God for salvation for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile, all those who believe. We saw that he was on mission to proclaim Christ, to plant churches, and his method was to proclaim Christ from the Scriptures. Not from his own opinion, not from his ideas, but from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he had a message. Remember, he spoke about the Christ, the promised Messiah. And he spoke about Jesus of Nazareth. And he concludes to say the promised Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. This man is that Christ. And today we pick up where we left off to, to uh, see the response that his proclamation of Christ had. And we'll pick up reading in verse 4 through 9. And some of them, that is the the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles that were there in the synagogue, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob setting the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So from this narrative account of what followed Paul's proclamation of the gospel in the synagogue, we'll explore first the response to the gospel. And then we'll see two kinds of rule that are characteristic of the two major responses to the gospel. That is, the rule of the mob, and the rule of King Jesus. So we're going to be looking at the response to the gospel, the rule of the mob, and the rule of King Jesus. Of course, the response to the gospel is divided. There is not unanimity. There is division. Remember how Jesus instructed his disciples talking about the seed, that being the word of God, being sown on different kinds of soil. The parable of the soils, showing that the same word goes out, but depending upon the character, the quality of the soil, would determine 
whether or not that seed would, would, would produce, would bear fruit. There are always various responses to the proclamation of the gospel. And, and here, there are basically two. There's either the gospel is received, believed, or it's not received, it's disbelieved. Well, in order to understand how the gospel was re- uh, received, again, verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. Remember, Paul proclaims Christ from the scriptures. And some are persuaded. If you look in 1 Thessalonians, Paul will write this in the first chapter. The gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You see, they were persuaded because the Holy Spirit changed their hearts. Yes, Paul was an instrument. Paul uh, had to speak the truth, but the only reason they were persuaded was the word came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul goes on to say in chapter one of 1 Thessalonians that you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, that reception of the word, that being persuaded, didn't automatically mean an easy life. No, there's affliction, there's suffering. And then in chapter, later in chapter 1, he's got this great expression that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who's going to come and deliver you from the wrath of God to come. So even when you read this expression, and some of them persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, Jews, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, the God-fearing Gentiles, and, oh, by the way, not a few of the leading women, prominent women, business women, leaders in some kind of various capacity, they are persuaded the Holy Spirit is giving them the ability to believe. But we read further, but the Jews. Now, of course, when you read that, wait a minute, didn't some Jews believe? Yes, but overall, you'll see that the Thessalonian church is going to be a Gentile church, not many Jews. So here in verse five, but the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. They reject, they disbelieve. Why are they jealous? Could it be that Paul comes in and preaches and teaches and these Greek, these Gentile God-fearers are, are now identifying with Jesus more than Moses? They're jealous. They're, they're, they're envious. They're, um, they're angry. It, it, as you see what happens, it, there's anger. Could it be that this Christ-centered reading of the Hebrew Scriptures just brings up anger? Well, it sure looks that way. It looks that way here, and it's been that way in Philippi. It's been elsewhere at Lystra and Derby. Notice they didn't try to refute Paul's biblical argument, but what are they going to resort to? Ah, violence, mobs. You see, the gospel separates people. We know that. It separates members of the same family. It separates neighbors. 
separates co-workers. But we've got to beware, beware of a dangerous temptation. When we acknowledge the separation that the gospel brings, and when we recognize that some receive and some do not, we should look upon people who, who reject the gospel with, with, with pity, not with scorn. Um, our closing hymn is going to remind us that the reason we're here, the reason that we've been brought in, as it were, to the house of God is it's because God has brought us in. We didn't, as it were, open the door and walk in. The door was opened and we were called in. So when you look around to, to, to family members and friends who have rejected Christ, are you mad? Or are you sad? How many of you, hey kids, if you see a blind person having trouble walking on the sidewalk, are you mad at them? When you encounter someone who's maybe hard of hearing all the way to being deaf, are you angry at them for being deaf? My friends, that's our unbelieving folks around us. They're blind. They're deaf. Our eyes have been opened. Our ears have been unstopped. Oh, how that should reorient the way we see people, the way we approach people. We see with those who reject the gospel, who don't receive. Remember, John writes that, that, uh, that, that um, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who believed, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. But here we see what happens when people don't receive and don't believe. What happens here in Thessalonica? With those who reject the gospel, we see that what is exercised is mob rule, the rule of the mob. Notice, who exercises this mob rule? Look, uh, they were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, kind of some unscrupulous men, kind of bums, one tra translation said, who were hanging out kind of at the downtown market. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Now, who exercises mob rule? Unbelievers, in particular, religious unbelievers. Think back to the martyrdom of Stephen. Think about as he is speaking of Christ and looking up to heaven, a, a mad rush of people come up and stone him to death. Including, as Paul would say, you know, that he was kind of there. Saul was there. Who are those people that form the mob that kill Stephen? Religious people. Jews who are being faithful to the scriptures. Or so they believe. You see, mob rule is standard operating procedure in a world that's upside down due to mankind being sinful. You see, Genesis 3 shows us that the, the world that was right side up gets turned upside down. 
And so when we hear that expression that these men have turned the world upside down, actually they're turning the world right side up. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. So the mob is led by the Jews. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that they actually sort of say, we've got to get some people to be the mob for us. Are the Jewish leaders from the synagogue a little bit hesitant to, to actually be part of the mob, or are they okay with inciting the mob? Having the mob do their dirty work, their, 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 their business work, as it were. And this mob makes two accusations. We read this, and when they, they could not find them, that is Paul and Silas and others, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Probably we heard about them in Philippi. They're here now in our town. And Jason has received them. What was Jason doing? A Jew, a convert, hosting out-of-town missionaries. And yet we believe Paul and Silas and others got the word. They went to a safe house. They weren't there when the mob comes and attacks. So they drag out Jason. And they make this accusation. They've turned the world upside down. And then they make another accusation. They're against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So accusation number one, they are troublemakers. They've disrupted the the civil peace in Philippi, and they're bringing it here. They've turned the world upside down. They've troubled the world. Gospel does upset things. Why? Because it changes people. It changes the social world. It brings it at times into an upheaval. The last are first. The weak are strong. The poor are rich. The outcast is brought in. And there's another, the second accusation can be uh, framed in a word that you've probably heard in recent days. Sedition. Sedition. They accuse Paul, Silas, and others of sedition. And what is sedition? It's conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of the state or against a monarch. It's what Jesus was accused of, right? Before Pilate was in our New Testament reading, Jesus had been accused of sedition of subverting the nation by claiming himself to be Christ, a king. Now that claim, of course, is at times misunderstood and misinterpreted. I mean, the gospel does undermine and relativize the Christian's loyalty to any regime, any political regime. But Jesus, through his example, teaches you submit to human governing authorities. Why? Because God is the king. Peter teaches that. Paul teaches that. So yes, Christianity is subversive, but not in a way that brings... I mean, Christians are actually the best citizens. Think about it. But it's a dangerous accusation because it's, it's half true. The gospel does trouble the world. The gospel, from their perspective, is turning the world upside down. But from our perspective, we see the gospel is turning the world right side up. 
Now, before we move on, I want us to just think about characteristics of mob rule. Now, I searched the scriptures over the last few days, and I just can't find any biblical evidence for a Christian mob. I can't. I see a lot of evidence for an unbelieving, pagan, godless mob, even dressed up in religious, but I just can't find an evidence of a Christian mob. And so the church, Christians, we're not part of mob rule. Because mob rule says, shoot first, ask questions later. Mob rule is where you're ruled by passions that aren't honorable, aren't reasonable, and certainly not in line with the truth. A few days ago, I ran across this statement uh, in the writings of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian novelist, philosopher, historian, short story writer, and political prisoner. He lived from 1918, and he died uh, in 2008. And before I share what Solzhenitsyn says, I want us to think. The mob rule is not so much out there. The mob rule, first and foremost, is in our own heart. Because the culture war is not so much out there amongst other people, it's in here, amongst our own disordered affections. You know, what is the biggest problem in the world today? That was asked in the early part of the 20th century by a London newspaper. And the answer that won was, I am. The mob rule takes place in our own hearts where we're listening to ourselves, we're listening to all these voices. We're the victim, we're complaining, we're whining. Nobody likes us. Uh, in our own hearts, this, this mob wells up. And again, what do we see with a mob? We see violence. And maybe that's, for us, the violent words that come out. So Solzhenitsyn says this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That's worth repeating. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. So my friends, even though Christians and the church are not defined as people who exercise mob rule, if you're honest with yourself, if you look in the mirror of God's word and you're before him and saying, search me, O God, and know my heart, God will help you identify and dismantle the mob that's assembled in your own heart. But with those who receive the gospel, we see them submit to the rule of King Jesus. And so now let's explore the accurate statement, the accurate, truthful proclamation that there is another king, Jesus. Indeed, the rule of King Jesus. 
And as you think about King Jesus, his rule, contrast that with the mob that we've just seen attacking, dragging. The city is in an uproar. You see, the rule of King Jesus is not mob rule. It's one man rule. That one man who has all authority. It is, as I like to remind folks, a benevolent dictatorship. We always think of dictators as being tyrants. Well, how about a a dictator that's good, that's honest, that's true? That's Jesus, a benevolent dictator. You see, through the gospel, the world is being turned right side up one person at a time as, as one person after another acknowledges the rule of King Jesus. You see, Jesus' rule did not dictate revolution against Rome, but rather respectful submission to rulers. Scripture does, of course, give us indication, even in Acts, that there may may come a time when we have to obey God rather than men. If we're directed to sin, of course, we have to obey God rather than men. But that's often, um, that line to cross is usually not where we may think it is at the beginning. So let's look at what the rule of King Jesus looks like first in the life of a Christian. Jesus had subdued us to himself as king. He he rules and defends us and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Isn't that great news? What a great king we have who, who... who captures us, who makes us a captive, right? And he, he uh, rules us, he defends us, he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. And King Jesus, of course, heads up a kingdom. And he, throughout the gospels we read in the parables, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. It's a great exercise sometime on a Sunday afternoon just to go through one of the Gospels, Luke in particular. Look at all the parables. The kingdom of God is like, the king is like. So how does the rule of of King Jesus look in the life of a Christian? Well, it looks like this. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted, not because they're jerks, not because they're stubborn, not because they're foolish, but they're persecuted because they are pursuing the righteousness of Christ. What else does the rule of King Jesus look like in the life of a Christian? How about this? It looks like a display of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm about to ask all of you a question that I have to first and foremost ask myself. Does your life, does my life, reflect the teaching and the example of Jesus? 
Because Christianity is more than a doctrine. Christianity is a life. And it's a life that we have in Christ. So does my life, does your life, reflect both the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus? And we all know the answer right off the bat, right? It doesn't. At least if you're looking for a black and white answer. But oh, may God be changing us more and more each and every day to walk in the manner he has called us to walk and live in the manner he has called us to live. So what does the rule of King Jesus look like in the life and ministry of the church? It's pretty easy, isn't it? It's a group of people. It's everyone being ruled by Jesus, not by false gods, not by idols. The big one, the idol of self, the idol of success or career or this philosophy or that philosophy or this position or that position. No, the rule of King Jesus in the church looks like where everyone is being ruled by Jesus. Everyone doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. So how are we doing as a church? With the folks that know us, with the folks that live around us in the coming days, will they have any idea that we are being ruled by someone outside of us? Or will they see us being ruled by our own passions, our own demands, our own desires? Because if that's the case, we're going to have strife and conflict and difficulty. But if we're all yoked together under the lordship and leadership of King Jesus, oh, what a sweet place this will be. And so what will the rule of King Jesus look like in the world? Christians living. Churches being established, growing, serving. That's what the rule of King Jesus looks like in the world. And so we've seen from God's word that responses to the gospel lead to two very different kinds of rule. For unbelievers, it's the rule of the mob. For believers... It's the rule of King Jesus. The upside down world is turned right side up by the gospel, one person at a time. A number of years ago when I was a young new staff member of the Navigators U.S. Military Ministry, I was at a a, a retreat, a, a working retreat at the beach, which was nice. Um, And I remember sitting around the dinner table late one night, and there were two men that I respected a lot, and they've had great influence in my life. And they were talking about a current social um, issue. And, And one man said, the way to address this is legislation. And the other man said, it's not gonna work. No, you can't impose morality by legislation, it's got to be one heart changed 
another heart changed. I'll never forget that day. One man that spoke that night was with the Lord. The other man is still serving here on earth. But those were two views that were expressed. And I think scripture would say that the upside down world is turned right side up by the gospel. One person at a time. You see, we've got to move from the trivial, I mean shirts and boxes to the vital. Your life, the world. You see, faith in Jesus Christ is how your and my upside down world turns right side up. Because the gospel, in one sense, has a big arrow on its side and says, this side up. Otherwise, we're just going to have to figure it out on our own. I'd like to close with a few words from a hymn we sang back on the first Sunday in December. Because in a world that's still upside down, and did we not see that this week? This past week, we'll probably see evidence of it this coming week. And we just have to look in the mirror and ask some honest questions and recognize that, yeah, the the sin has still turned my world upside down. But in a world, because of sin, that's still upside down, joy has dawned. Joy has dawned upon the world promised from creation. God's salvation now unfurled. Hope for every nation. Not with fanfare from above. Not with scenes of glory. But a humble gift of love. Jesus born of Mary. You see my friends. Joy and peace does not come via the mob. And that hymn ends with these words. Son of Adam, son of man, given as a ransom, reconciling God and man, Christ, our mighty champion. What a savior, what a friend, what a glorious mystery. Once a babe in Bethlehem, now the Lord of history. You see, joy and peace doesn't come via the mob, but it does come from a man, the man Christ Jesus. He And He alone is our mighty champion. He alone is the one and only benevolent dictator. For those who have spiritual eyes, they see that Jesus is ruling and reigning right here, right now. And the day is coming and may it come quickly. When at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ and not Caesar is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so my friends, greatly blessed are those who here and now take refuge in Jesus And who know that this is our Father's world. Oh, let us never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. My friends, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
keep us living right side up in an upside down world. Rest, rest in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we've seen in this narrative account of the results of the proclamation of the gospel in the Roman province of Macedonia almost 2,000 years ago, may it encourage us as we continue to proclaim the same gospel here and now of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his coming, his promised return. And, oh, Father, help us not to be discouraged by the response that we see, and may we have pity on those who at least not yet are still blind and still deaf. Oh, God, help us to rest in our benevolent dictator, Jesus Christ, who is both great and good. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We respond to the 